0: I first heard the name Bo Kalen in association with the Baxter Avenue Theater in Louisville, Kentucky. There he curated an incredible midnight movie series featuring diverse films like Darkman, Easy Rider, Spaceballs, Zardos, and lots more. Later I learned he was also a filmmaker and was able to see some of his fine work. We recently screened Bo's fifth film, Symbiosis, as part of the first night of Unscripted Six. In this episode of the podcast, he and I discuss his filmmaking process, booking cult films, and the importance of community enjoy. Let's start, I guess, Bo, by just telling the listeners a little bit about yourself and, uh, your teaching career, your career at the Baxter Avenue Theater, and just a little bit about your first dabblings in film.
1: Okay, so basically the, the background as to why everyone jokes about me never sleeping then, I suppose. <laughs> uh, I, I, I guess I could go all the way back to um, when I was a student at UofL. I started working at Baxter Avenue Theaters, which is a family-owned theater in the Highlands in Louisville, Kentucky. It's actually, you know, at the time it was the only art and independent theater in town. And um, so I started managing there and after a few years, uh, I kind of got into the promotions end of working at the theater. So uh, trying to bring in special engagements of films, uh, if you know a director or someone was available, trying to do that too, similar um, to what you do here at the library. And um, I think the thing that, you know, ended up clicking and where I got to know a lot of people was uh, running a midnight series over the
0: years. Yes, I attended many of those.
1: Yeah, so it's, you know, I mean, I've just always been a big believer in using film as a community builder. You know, I I just, I loved seeing like the the regular family um, of misfits that came every couple (laughs) of weeks into the midnights and interacting just over that time. So um, I'd say that's probably what got me into making movie projects as well. Because you can't work at a movie theater for very long before you start playing around with making movies yourself. Because I've talked to friends who worked at Showcase and other theaters in town, and they ended up doing the same thing. So um, when it came to uh, getting into making films, I didn't really start off as wanting to make movies as a, a hobby or anything along that line, it actually started as a practical joke for me <laughs> because um, there were there was a couple of employees that worked at the theater in 2004 that decided to make sort of a weird clerk's mockumentary of what it was like to work at a movie theater <laughs> as well as what it was like to work in the Highlands. And um, Kill Bill had just come out, so... Uh, my friend Bennett Duckworth he made a movie called Kill Bo and you know one of the running gags was since I was the manager you know ex-employees wanted to kill me off and that sort of thing <laughs> and it was, it was stupid fun but um, then Bennett he started working on another project and um, got very very ambitious with it and um, filmed I'd say about a good hour's worth of a movie project that he called Team Switchblades and then just you know, It was a combination just running out of momentum, time, people's schedules, and all that sort of thing. And so as a, uh, a cinematic roast, if you will, I decided my first movie is an unofficial sequel to his film. <laughs> I, I tracked down like a lot of ex-employees who'd been in Kilbo, and I roped in his family, and I even like tried to mimic his filmmaking style. <laughs> so I created a sequel to his films without him knowing it <laughs> and then on his birthday I, I took him out um to eat and the whole time i'm secretly texting people and i roped in his family his friends everyone into the theater for the premiere of the film and then so afterwards i suggested well let's just stop off at baxter i want to like show you something in one of the theater i can't even remember what i made up at the time i think <laughs> i said some graffiti was one of the theaters and when he walked in there was like all these people and he he was like what is this like michael douglas is the game or something (laughs) like what what has happened and then you know that was just sort of a fun project but after it was over the the group of misfits i'd assembled for the project essentially were like well what's next and and that's sort of what kicked off like this lineage of films to where they're all sort of interconnected I wanted to
0: talk to you about that too because I remember seeing something you posted on Facebook about how how our stuff is kind of like tightly wound together and I I was really impressed by that
1: yeah it's to me when I grew up as a kid I loved I loved Star Wars so much mostly because it created a universe right you know I realize in this day and age now every single character has a backstory and Mm -hmm. that's almost sort of it's gone almost too far in in the um, direction of like Everybody having a backstory, but right. um, when I was growing up, I just liked the fact that this universe felt full. Like mm-hmm. every character that you saw, you didn't even know their names, but you felt like there was a cool backstory to them. And um, it was also when Toy Story and Pixar, you know, they started making a lot of those films. I'd read about how they had a lot of Easter eggs that connected those yeah, films. I've read
0: some of that Pixar theory, so that's really interesting.
1: So it was just something I, I started doing almost as inside jokes at first to the audience to where like in my second film, Callous's Birthday Party, there were a couple of like slight little nods right. to um, my first film, which we dubbed There Will Be Butter was actually that unofficial um, sequel to Kill Bo. And um, from there, just with each project, at first it started out as just little inside jokes and winks to the audience that knew the projects. And then as time went on, I started using reoccurring characters or reoccurring locations. So even though the stories might have been, you know, one was a sci-fi, one was a comedy, one was a horror. You had these intersecting sort of, um, you know, lineages from one film to the next. And um, I don't know. I, I just like the fact that it
0: does make that, it makes those worlds seem full. Right. And as someone who didn't necessarily like, I wasn't necessarily there for all the inside jokes. Just kind of a new mm-hmm. person coming in. This, they were still hilarious. Like I, I'm sure I missed some of the some of the subtle stuff, but it, they were they are really funny. Uh, going back to your first film, like did you have your own equipment or what, what did you shoot on?
1: Uh, I've never really had any kind of fancy equipment to speak of when it comes to making my movie projects. The the first film that I shot on, I just shot with a handy cam, okay. and um, that was my first time ever using editing software. So I just mm-hmm. kind of learned as I went. Yeah. You know, every single one of my projects, when I go back and I look at them and I watch them, I'm like, man, I would change that or I would do this differently. But right. at the same time, they're a learning process. So I, I
0: mean, you can really see the evolution in the many things uh, that, that you've sent to me. You can, uh, it's amazing how far the leaps are in between projects, for sure. Uh, what did you edit on for that first one?
1: Uh, in the way of like just a machine yeah just,
0: just like was it just a computer software or? just a
1: lenovo laptop okay. sony vegas is the program okay, that cool. i i started using and i still use just because yeah. what you kind of learn on is really what you sort of settle into yeah,
0: it's the job done for sure mm-hmm. um so uh like the midnight I, I don't i usually try to stick to the movies but i'm, I'm really interested by the, like the midnight movie stuff well, like, mm-hmm. what, what was the first film you guys showed for that like I know personally from experience that sometimes it's tough to get rights to show stuff, and like, t- tell me a little bit about that. Uh,
1: the Midnight's, it, um, the very first series that I had, uh, I started off in, it was August of two thousand and three. First film I showed was Donnie Darko, and um, the reason I, I chose Donnie Darko was it had built sort of a cult following mm-hmm. at the time, and so it was almost just sort of this gamble to see if people would even show up at midnight to see something that was already on DVD because um, you know, the way that I at least got permission from the, the owner of the theater to even do the stuff to begin with is years ago, we'd started doing the Rocky horror picture show once a month. And so I made the argument. I said, well, the staff are all here late anyway for that one film and the other seven theaters are completely empty so why not just show something in another theater that potentially is not going to be stealing a lot of the rocky horror picture show crowd
0: yeah makes
1: sense the other folks would be interested in because there's more than just one cult film Mm -hmm. so that first series that i did um it was donnie darko and I didn't even know how I was going to do. And by, I think it was 5 o'clock that afternoon, a theater of 200 and the seats about 250 had already sold out. Oh, wow. And so we actually, and that's back when we were showing stuff on 35. Mm -hmm. So we had the ability to interlock it to a second theater, which for the listeners, it means that basically you take that 35 millimeter film and as it exits one projector, you're actually stretching it a good couple hundred feet just attached to spools and then feeding it into a second projector. Like, it's... It's one of those things you kind of sweat doing because so much can go wrong. Sounds intense. But, um... And after that, uh, we did uh, Spinal Tap, um, Akira, uh, Pink Flamingos, Fight Club. You know, it was just a fun series of films. And then it was right about November that the city shut us down.
0: Oh, wow.
1: Because, um... One thing that I was not aware of, and somehow just us doing Rocky Horror hadn't really gained that much attention, but once we started doing the other Midnights and they were selling out we had big crowds and we started getting media coverage, uh, it turns out that there was a um, policy that our theater couldn't show any films past midnight. Hmm. It was some sort of trade-off when the theater was first built because... Uh, the neighbors were worried that there was going to be like a lot of trouble from oh, right. you know, kids hanging out or something. So, when they first built the theater, they said, Well, we'll, you know, I can't remember exactly what they called these articles or clauses, but mm-hmm. basically, one of them was you won't show films past midnight so you wouldn't have a lot of noise in the neighborhood, even right. though the Highlands is not the most quiet yeah. place at midnight.
0: <laughs> I spent a good deal of time there, yeah, that's, that's true.
1: So, the, the th- series got shut down in January and myself and uh, the owner and one of the other managers spent about a year and a half fighting it in court. And you know, I I still have the the sheet of paper that was sent to us because I'm I'm proud that I got a cease and desist letter from the city of Louisville that I (laughs) I have framed at home for something that I did. But eventually we found that one of the restrictions, the reason the restriction existed to begin with was it was to account for the fact that we didn't have the legal amount of parking spaces uh, so they actually went in and re-striped the parking spaces with the minimum legal requirement and that moved up the number and thus it was thrown out and we restarted nice. and yeah. I, I realize I've gotten sidetracked now no, no. but but I guess when it comes to the rights in those days of showing 35 it was like an easter egg hunt for a lot of stuff Because just because you know that Columbia released something on DVD, DVD rights are not the same as exhibition rights. And so, you know, the other problem is most studios don't want to even fool with you doing exhibitions because if one person in an office, their job is to get the new Harry Potter or the new Hunger Games out to several thousand theaters along the East Coast, they're not worried about this one guy at this one theater that wants to show one film one night. And, And so... You know, it, it just becomes almost like an Indiana Jones-like hunt to figure out who holds the rights and if a print
0: exists, yeah. and yeah, it's, it's some of them were a nightmare, but... Yeah, we have a blanket license here, so mostly we're good for stuff on DVD or whatever, but uh, with things like The Room, you know, he has all the rights to that, so we had to deal with him directly, mm-hmm. uh, emailed him, uh, he emailed me back some questions, I answered those questions, he emailed me back asked me the same questions over and over again
1: it's it's a strange group i won't lie because yeah. we had the same thing because we showed the room as a midnight multiple times and the first time i booked it it was it was a lot of roundabout like yeah. you were saying and finally they sent us a print and then i emailed them like well, where do you want us to send this print back to and they never got back to us and then i wanted to reshow it like six months later yeah. so i said i'm interested in showing this again and they were like all right And they sent us a print when we already had one. And there was a period where we had, because we showed it every six months, we'd always ask, where do you want to send this back? We had, I think it was four copies of the room just on 35 millimeter (laughs) sitting upstairs, like in a corner. That can't
0: be cheap for them either, right?
1: So, yeah, we began to wonder. It's like, who on earth is working there? They aren't even keeping track of
0: 35-millimeter and all those midnight uh, films, that's kind of where you found your inspiration to, to start dabbling in movies and just your camaraderie with your coworkers and stuff. I
1: think so. I mean, yeah. And just like I said, building that that regular community where I had a good core of about 100 to 150 people that showed up every two weeks or so. Mm-hmm. And um, I tried to do a lot of different special events around the films if I could.
0: Sure. So, I, um, I remember that like, one thing I loved that you did was showing the previews, like the old previews and stuff. Yep. First time I heard of Zardos, first time I saw One Second of Zardos, was when I went to see Spaceballs when you guys showed that.
1: Yeah, and that was something, those trailers were, um, it was a collection of old 35mm trailers, uh, trailers. I had a few that I just bought over the years. Mm-hmm. But... Um, a guy by the name of Carl Walshlegel used to manage the Vogue in Louisville, mm-hmm. and the Vogue was the quintessential art house um, for a number of decades. And he just kept all these old trailers from one year to the next. And when the theater closed, he just took them with him. Mm-hmm. And so he, after the Vogue closed, he worked at a couple of different theaters before he came to work for us, and he almost sort of became like a, a mentor on me, poking his brain, finding out, okay, when you all showed this in, you know, 82 or, you know, whatever year, how did it do? And and in some cases, you know, he would be surprised as to how well something did that we got, in other cases, you know, shocked that it didn't do as well as it did. But he brought in all those trailers for us to use. And, you know, I think there were some people that enjoyed the trailers as much as, if not more, <laughs> than the film, just because, you know, granted, you can go and watch any of these trailers on YouTube, but it's not the same as just seeing them all um, spliced and crackling in front in of a film. All that a group is so
0: much better for sure. And we did a, a cult film series here called Schlockorama, mm-hmm. and basically they were sort of mystery science theater parties where we would just rip on the film uh, yeah. in a crowd and we always have something special to go along with it i know you're saying you guys did that too uh like we showed mazes and monsters the tom mm-hmm. hanks anti-dungeons and dragons movie and before that we taught introductory D D&D sessions one of our staff <laughs> members is actually a published dungeons and dragons author and uh, he led some people through that uh we showed uh, the terrible sergeant pepper's uh, musical movie oh with god the yeah and uh my friend dory who's originally from owensburg she lives in liverpool now and became a student at the university over there and she has a degree in Beatles and popular music. She's a Mm -hmm. musicologist now. So she came and introduced that and talked a little bit about that. So we would, we would try to do stuff like that. And then we also partnered with uh, the community theater and town theater workshop Mm -hmm. and they have a black box theater. That's an old church. It's one of the oldest churches in, in the county and uh, they have a projection screen, so we set that up and we'd show them in there too. It wasn't as successful when we did it off-site. I think kind of like, I don't, I, don't, I don't know if it just walked through, traffic. just threw people Ryan. off by being in a different location. Yeah, yeah. so with your movies, uh, what? so you said uh, your first one was, uh, what was it again? The, the uh, Get Bennett? Movie? We just called it
1: um, There Will Be Butter. There will be butter, right? It was also sort of nicknamed Kill Bennett since it was right. the, the unofficial sequel to gotcha. Kill Bo.
0: So uh, from there, like I know, like when, when did like I know those first ones are kind of like they had a plot, but they weren't as like much plot driven as the newer stuff. Uh, when when I would did you transition? S-
1: I would say it probably my third film because my second film, um, Callis's birthday party. When you watch it, you can tell that we were all very much into Tim and Eric, right. awesome show, great job, and the other odd stuff that Adult Swim was putting out. And when I kind of look at my early three movies basically there will be butter was us just sort of saying hey doing these movies might be fun callus's birthday party was us stretching our legs and figuring out what would we do when we ad lib or basically if i give my friends complete freedom what are they going to do because the premise of it was i had a party and i had a couple of people there with cameras filming and everyone who came to the party like I, i had an open invite the only catch was you had to come in character and you weren't allowed to break character all night long. And so at first, you know, it was just sort of awkward as we were trying to feel each other out. But once you started drinking a little bit and then just, then it became this game as to who could one up one another (laughs) on just being more bizarre. And the night got really darn weird because there were like weird subplots of like, um, Trying to find a gun made out of Nazi gold, <laughs> and um, there was like a weird great conjunction to where um, you know the world was going to potentially and like all this sort of weird absurd stuff that just sort of culminated. Yeah. And afterwards, what I did was I took that and that was like the middle forty-five minutes of the film. And then I figured out, okay, what sketches could lead up to it, and what sketches could then finish it out. Oh, that's brilliant. I love that. And like- and that became. That was just that test of okay, so here's all my friends' strengths if they're just ad libbing making stuff up on the spot. So my first like true scripted film the where I just shot it along with that was um Dick for Hire. Okay. And um with that I mean it's just sort of a, a tongue in cheek parody of the film noir films of the twenties, thirties, forties, that particular and I know era. you're a big Dick
0: Tracy fan and I yeah. see that coming in some of your stuff too. Like uh one one uh, i'm really really impressed with with your stuff is just how much you go into your effects i know you mm-hmm. you brought some uh, slides to show tonight uh talk about like how you first started getting into that and how it came into your films
1: uh makeup started before the before i started getting into films if anything you could also probably argue that now that time's gone by that my films are almost an excuse for me to try new makeup ideas um just you mentioned i'm a huge dick tracy fan and that's that's very much what sort of got me into playing with makeup to begin with because i was a huge fan as like a little little kid of um, the universal monster movies right. and i even knew like how makeup was done you know i remember there was a reading rainbow to where lavar burton got <laughs> yes. makeup put on and and i read like little books as a kid from um the bullet county library that just had like behind the scenes stuff on making monsters but But there was something about Dick Tracy to where I I just had vivid memories as a a 10-year-old looking at the trading cards for this film. And it just blew my mind that you could use makeup to do something other than make people look like monsters. And, you know, you could just make these weird human beings as a result. And then um, it, it goes into that whole idea, again, that I was talking about earlier to where, like, once you get interested in something, it expands outward. When I got into Dick Tracy, the movie, they released reprints of the comics, and then suddenly I got really, really big into the comic strip, and you had, like, 70 years' worth of all Same that. Same here, uh, But I, then...
0: I had the fanny pack, too, so... Oh, yeah. Everybody had a fanny pack <laughs>
1: yeah. in the 90s. There, right. There's no shame in that. Yeah. But then as I got older, like, after I graduated high school and had a little bit more disposable income and, you know, a little bit more freedom, I started playing around with just... Um, makeup just for fun mostly around halloween and that just seeing what i could do Um, i always did the costume contest with the midnights and then so when i got into dick for hire i think that's the first one i really played a lot around with with makeup because i thought okay i want to make my own dick tracy rogues gallery Mm -hmm. within this film and then some people just had a little bit and then there were some that had like full prosthetic makeup you know just for fun so as time's gone on, I just kind of keep challenging myself to try to do stuff different. So like with tonight's film, Symbiosis, that was the first time I'd created um, like sort of puppet um, creatures that I could manipulate as well as made a uh, full body monster suit too. My, my garage is actually more of a makeup uh, workshop than it is an actual true garage most people got like a, a wall you know to hang up tools I've just got shelves of um, life casts of different heads and awesome. features of my friends
0: yeah that's uh I, I love effects there, I saw uh, Macbeth uh, it was done in Evansville at the Alto Performing Arts Studio mm-hmm. and uh that was like one of the wildest theatrical productions I've ever seen they did it essentially like a horror film uh, and they use like Interpol and different like modern bands in the soundtrack super great sound design but uh Kevin uh, Kevin Roach, who's an actor, you may have, I don't know if you know him or not. He's been mm-hmm. in some stuff around. The yeah. world. Uh He was in Bottoms of Blood that we shot here. Uh, they actually did a full mold of his head for the beheading scene. It, w- it was fantastic. Uh, every That's every year cool. Alto does like a real souped up version of a classic uh, around Halloween for the mm-hmm. show. I know uh, they did Frankenstein once and then used real electricity. And I think Kevin or another actor may actually got shocked in that. So <laughs> it's pretty pretty dangerous theater. Uh, so let's talk about tonight's movie a little bit. Tell, okay. me, tell me, I guess give me the elevator pitch for it without
1: anything away? Uh, Symbio- uh, Symbiosis is my hardest film to do a synopsis of just because <laughs> it's, it's a horror anthology, but it's not. It, it is five short films uh, to where you've got a bunch of intertwined characters. But um, the basic gist of it is you, you start off with a very sort of benign incident. A kid finds a... Um, A dead creature on the side of the road. And so he brings it into his school teacher to just ask, you know, hey, do you know what this is? And his biology teacher looks at it and he's like, got no idea. You know, it's this very, you know, fleeting sort of moment. But from there, it sets off this domino effect um, to where you end up having over a dozen people getting impacted by this one minute little incident. And, um, you know, the monsters are both human as well as inhuman and so it's just the crisscrossing of all these different storylines um that kind of leads to the culmination of the end of the film that you get to where it just jumps back and forth in time as you go along so you know i I suppose i've always thought it's really really it's cool but frightening at the same time how connected we are as humans um You know, I mean, just before you and I started this podcast, you know, we were talking and we've crossed paths multiple times Mm -hmm. before. So, you know, every single person, you think that as you go through your day, even if you're keeping to yourself and your decisions don't impact people, they can have both positive and negative consequences on human beings you've never met before. And I just thought, you know, that's a very frightening sort of reality. And I thought, why not do a horror film to where that is the horror? It's not so much about the monsters, but rather... The interconnectivity that you cannot avoid in life.
0: I just uh, I just finished up the new Dirk Gently series on BBC. I don't know if you got a chance to check mm-hmm. that. It's nothing like the books. The books are fantastic, but the, sh- the show was really good. It's kind of a separate thing, but they deal with the interconnectedness sort of a lot, and that's uh, it was, stuff like that's really interesting. And uh, I, I think uh, you're you're good at executing that thing. You're, you're really great at it. So, uh, how long did it take you to write the script?
1: Uh, I mean, once I sat down and wrote it, it was only. Couple months, but I mean, it had been bouncing around in my head for a while. There's mm-hmm. actually, I never throw away notebooks. Mm-hmm. I've got a Tupperware that's filled with about 15, 20 filled just generic Mead spiral notebooks, just with ideas, dialogue, everything. They're they're wells for me to occasionally go back to, and I'll just skim through them and think, "Oh God, I forgot I wrote that." But scattered throughout them are different flowcharts to where you just have names of characters written and just arrows going every direction to where if you know, if something were to happen to me and somebody were to find either those diagrams or just all those notebooks in general, it's like on the movie Seven when <laughs> Morgan Freeman and Brad Pitt's characters break in and are flipping through John Doe's notebooks. Right. And it's like there's no – because there is no rhyme or reason. There could be stuff from – 2014 on one page and the next page it's 2011 it's got like some weird symbol drawn underneath it and it's like well, what's this do oh well, if you find that symbol in another notebook that's where that idea picks up like it is so so there would be good props to use in some of your stuff too yeah uh, <laughs> it's they're a little chaotic but it's it's a system that that does work for me yeah. but yeah the, trying to figure out how to connect all the characters that I think was the longest part of that um, but once I started writing out the film I tried to I tried to write as minimally as possible and it's one of my shortest films I think it comes in at like an hour and 23 or something so um I just tried to keep it as tight and make it to where every bit of dialogue was about as essential as it needed to be.
0: Yeah. Um, so when you got done with the script, like, did you immediately start talking to your friends, hey, you want to play this part, or do you have people in mind? I, know. I tend to have people in mind, and that's,
1: actually, that's usually one of my tips I would give my students at school because um, I sponsored a um, film club at the high school I teach at for a number of years, and I always told them, when you write a script and you're shooting for no money write to your resources don't write a location that you don't know you can't access you know don't write in a character to where you can't picture who on earth will play this because um you know the one thing that I, I do take as sort of a compliment when people see my films is they'll find out that all the people in the films none of them are professional actors They're i was going to
0: ask if I, if it was predominantly people who hadn't acted before yeah
1: it, it's they're all co workers. It's teachers, it's former students, it's people who worked at the theater. Um, but what I try to do is I try to write an extension of their personality right. to where you aren't playing yourself, but you're playing an extension of yourself. So it's not like I'm taking, you know, sort of a, a bookish, you know, middle aged US history teacher and trying to make it to where he is, I don't know, some mad serial killer in the form of like Jason Bateman or something but you know can I make it to where he's like some sort of odd perverse professor who has like an odd obsession yeah that sort of like fits you you try to figure out who does this character sort of like resemble and write to that so um like the script I'm currently writing right now um I pretty much have in mind everybody who's going to be in it I've already touched base with them and said hey I'm working on this would you be interested and and by and large, now that I've kind of got the the cast of regulars, it's folks are usually down for it because cool. by and large I tend to repeat with the same cast every single movie. It's just somebody who only had like a bit part in one is
0: the lead in another, and vice versa. Uh, so as far as shooting goes, do you, I know earlier you said you used a handy cam? Do you kind of hang on to like retro equipment, or do you just improve that as you go along?
1: Uh, I well I. I change out cameras when I kill them it is because I I have friends now right now what I use is a, a Canon 7D and I've got some friends that are professional filmmakers like that's what they do for a living they shoot commercials and when they see me handling it they, they're cringing <laughs> because they're like dude you realize that thing is it, it isn't like it's fragile I'm like well if I break it then I'll get a new camera right,
0: that's stuff's so cheap these days
1: yeah, yeah. and you know, I, I used the Sony Handicam for my first two films. And then I, I don't remember. No, I know I shot like a short film outside um, during the 2009 ice storm. and just, it was outside in the cold too long. That killed it. Uh, I shot Dick for Hire and Balloons on the Police, my fourth film, on a, a Canon XL1. And that I accidentally left in a hot vehicle and it just fried the circuitry. Oh, no. So then I've had the, the Canon... 7D ever since, and at least the base is still functional. I've um, I've worn out a couple of lenses, but to me, you know, if if it's a hobby or if it's a profession, a camera is a utilitarian. Right. Thing. It's not meant to be something that you're just treating like a Fabergé it's egg, not like know, the it's first
0: like appearance of Spider Man or anything. No, no. <laughs> How long did it take you to shoot Symbiosis?
1: I shot Symbiosis in. The core of it, so like I, not counting pickup shots, eight days. Eight, oh wow! And then I'd say I probably had about another six or seven or eight days to where I was just doing like little insert shots or stuff. But like the bulk of filming, all the dialogue and all the main scenes, yeah, that was eight shoots.
0: Ah, so like mo- most of your productions are they pretty run and gun? Like uh, as far like once you start shooting, or do you
1: I try to because if you're if you're filming with friends that aren't getting paid, they're just doing it just for fun. Mm-hmm. The more you drag it out, I've found, the more you lose momentum. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say that the film that it took me the longest to shoot was my first one, They'll Be Butter. That, that was like from sort of a sprawling August of 2007 to you know beginning of April of 2008. Whereas most of my films now, it's I try to fit them in within a month. So that way, once you build up that momentum, everybody is good you know, you can even just say within this month i i typically start off each feature since i you know i can't pay people i'll just have like a really big barbecue at my place mm-hmm. you know with tons of food tons of beer and just um i'll have all the primaries and even like some a lot of the secondaries i'll just kind of open it up to majority of the cast to do a read-through and so that way if there's someone that's new to our family is kind of how we regard it now that you know, we've been doing so many different projects together. They get to meet everyone, and um, you also kind of get to do a read through and just feel out the characters. And then also before people leave, I'm just like, okay, let me let's figure out a schedule here that's going to work. And you'll, you'll have some people that can't get off work, and you'll know, have to change. By and large, it, we tend to stick to that once we get it.
0: Yeah, that's that's cool. That's uh, when we did volumes blood here. And again, I w- I wasn't a producer on that. I didn't have that much to do with the the actual like day-to-day stuff Uh, and I kind of like showed people where stuff was around as a library employee I kind of knew where the nooks and crannies of the place were but uh, it was sort of run and gun it was stretched out over like six months but it was like on like weekends after hours so we would come here on a Saturday at like 5.30 the library closes at 6.00 everybody would prep for 30 minutes and then we'd go and we'd have to be out of the building by like 2 a.m. and it was a Mm -hmm. horror film with lots of gross uh, special effects so we would go like and have like 30 minutes to clean stuff up that was a a very rewarding experience and you were talking about community earlier and I know we kind of mentioned this before we started recording like uh, it's really cool uh, to give people in a town like Wandsboro a town where there are a lot of frustrated creatives that might not necessarily be able to go on a path toward filmmaking, like to give them an opportunity to get their hands wet or mm-hmm. hands dirty. Wet. <laughs> I screwed up the, the, uh, the saying there, but, uh, it, it's really rewarding to, to see like stuff click like that with people. Uh, one of the people who uh, was involved with production now lives in LA. It's cool to see people involved with stuff here, go on to better things. Again, we're not taking credit for anything, but it's just, it's cool to kind of have a, a listing on their IMDb page, I guess. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, it's, it's really neat. And with unscripted, like, uh, the first couple of unscripted, uh, within, within the first couple of seasons, we had a zombie night. And when we do that, we have a costume contest too. And people got really into the costume contest. Uh, one of the ladies whose costume was probably the most elaborate ended up doing effects work on volumes of blood and then probably the second most elaborate costume the guy ended up being PJ Stark's production partner he's like really tied into the whole volumes of blood like universe now they just did the sequel to that so yeah, I it's all yeah yeah i just i love uh, i love being just a very small part of these people coming together and that's that's really what unscripted's all about it's like being an education for people who want to get into it and bringing people together from different scenes when i book these nights now i try to take a person from a different scene and put them with a person from a different scene and you know it's cool like you know, possible collaborations will be born of that mm-hmm. and stuff like that. I really, that's I really dig that. But uh, going back to your movie, uh, so eight-day shoot, uh, editing. How long did that take you?
1: Uh, I'd say probably about a couple months. Couple months. Um, just because I mean there would be scenes to where I, I typically like to wait and edit to music. Mm-hmm um so i would wait for my composer william brian ragland he and i have collaborated on a couple of was projects was he in now. a
0: louisville band the, the name sounds really familiar he
1: was in a couple of louisville bands uh, the most prominent one was the revenants okay. for a number of years um and he was also um in a couple of others but that was the main one yeah okay. you know. but um now i mean to me i know some people some directors try to get somebody else to edit or even to shoot. I mean, I'm of sort of the, I think one thing that helps me do stuff for next to nothing, maybe even what keeps me running on them is I like doing everything for them. I love editing. I I can't comprehend how people can sit down and play a video game for hours. I don't have the patience for (laughs) it, but you put me into an editing suite Working on a project, and I won't move for twelve hours. I'll yeah. forget to eat because I get so engrossed. Because that really is where a movie is made. You know, it's this jigsaw puzzle that right. you're building as you go. Right. That's
0: the way I am with image editing. You get so zeroed in, you forget everything around you. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, yeah, that's that's. Uh, so you said two months, uh, and are you still? You said you're still using the same editing software that you were... The, oh yeah, not the same version, but right. yeah, the
1: the same program. Yeah, yeah, it's just like I said, once you. Once you start falling in line with, you know, the, the program that you sort of started with, I feel like that's the one you tend to use. Because sure. I know some friends, they prefer Premiere, some mm-hmm. prefer iFilm. Um, there is no right or wrong and that sort of thing. And, in fact, I've I've worked on those before. I've had students working on them as well. And, you know, you look at the layout on one, it's almost identical right. to the other. And they, they call the, the little menus and stuff. They give them different names. Right. But it, Overall, it's all the same the, thing.
0: Yeah. Uh, and that's a... I've been using iMovie on my iPhone, and like I just got it upgraded to seven recently, and it's amazing the power of that. Just and the images look great off of it. Mm-hmm. I mean, the editing software is not that robust on it, but you can actually do pretty good work with that. Just it's all about the, all about the story and the script, and I, I can easily see. Uh, have there been any features that you're aware of made with, a, or at least a short film with iPhones, or is that still? It seems like I heard about uh, something that I can't I want to say
1: Chan Park Wook, the, okay. the director behind Old Boy right. and the Vengeance Trilogy and, and, Thirst and that I want—I thought he shot part of or and or a whole film on an iPhone. i have
0: to look into that. That's, that's I that be think
1: I remember reading about that. I don't remember what film of his it would have been. Yeah. And I, I could be confusing him with another director.
0: Yeah, I'll have to do some research on that one. Uh, so um, – any like stories or lessons learned during the shoot or during the editing process from this one? Uh, from Symbiosis specifically, um, I think probably
1: it being the first time I actually had somebody in a, an actual monster outfit, I think I learned that when it comes to doing effects stuff, I learned for my next film Malvagio to try to do most of the effects shots as second day shoots or pickup shots or something after the people were done because um, one of the main nights in in symbiosis, it's how the film starts off. I mean, within the first minute, you have a kid on some middle of nowhere country road getting hit by a car. Uh, That was um, one of the longer shoots because since the movie keeps going back to that scene, there was a lot of stuff that we had to shoot out there. And my friend Jim Wise... Uh, he was actually a former student of mine that I kind of recruited. He was kind enough to play the monster. And I remember when I was telling a friend of mine, Bob Burns, he's a, a Hollywood collector historian. And um, when I told him I was wanting to do a monster suit movie, he joked. He said, Well, if you're going to put someone in a monster suit, tradition says you have to shoot on the hottest day of the year. <laughs> and I was like, Nah, I want to spare him that. And he just goes, no no, it's not a real monster movie unless you do it (laughs) and sure enough it was that summer 2012 where it seemed like we had a two-week stint of just 105 degree days so I remember the high that day was 111 I think I remember taking a photo of a thermometer when we were putting him in makeup like outside and so we were trying to shoot all the other stuff with the characters and their dialogue before he came in, but I had to get him into makeup before we started shooting and just, basically he ended up damn near dehydrating because I should have changed the order in which I shot the scene. So I kind of became more cognizant of that as time went on because we poured a bottle of water into him probably every 10 to 15 minutes, if not more regularly. And during that three some odd hours, he never had to go to the bathroom, you know, it just because he was just sweating it out. And it's like he was wearing a wet mattress by the time that we got him out of the um, costume. Yeah. But when Malvagio rolled along, that was the film I did after Symbiosis. I had a lot more um, special effects shots, and that's something to where um, I, with most of the effects shots, I shot those on a separate day than what I shot with the principal cast, that's just because right. I'd learned that lesson of okay want to have time to do all this effects stuff I don't need to have all the people in here so kind of like you were talking about um, you know shooting the volumes of blood here at the library you know that might be something where one day you end up shooting just the the up-close effect shots you know with the dummy heads or whatever you're using and then the other day is when you're shooting with most of the cast yeah
0: we uh, it, it was a rough schedule just because we had to work around the library yeah uh, for sure uh, and we are actually getting close to the time where we probably need to set up the room. So uh, I guess uh, t- tell us about the premiere and how it was received, and and where you're going next. Uh,
1: well, sure. the premiere I showed it just at Village Eight Theaters. I've never, I've never done the film festival thing. Um, you know, like I have shown stuff in quote unquote festivals, but it's kind of like with me being here tonight. It's just somebody saw my stuff and said, hey, we'd like to show one of your films. Sure. Um, just, festivals
0: gets expensive, from what I gather.
1: See, and that's the thing. Every one of my movies I've made for just a few hundred bucks, and when I look at, when I look at the um, the entry fees on that, it's like forty to fifty bucks a pop. And I'm like, man, to enter like you know a dozen festivals or so, I could make a movie on that along right. with the time that you'd be promoting it. So I just, I just tend to basically just keep rolling with different movie projects. Um, but I at least showed it at Village Eight Theaters for the sole purpose of here it's up on the screen and we could get everybody in to see it at once you know I would be fine with showing it in my backyard if I could fit 200 people there and not get in trouble with the police so um I mean we packed the house and everybody thoroughly enjoyed it you know that you know that that's sort of that gratifying thing to where you're you're sitting in your seat and you're sweating bullets when the movie's (laughs) going up there but you know when folks are you know you can hear them groaning or laughing at the right times. It kind of makes you feel good. And, um, something that I started after Cal, so Dick for hire was the first film that I did every time I've had a premiere in an audience, you know, like, so the first night with a good hundred people or so, I actually taped the audio and then later put it on the DVDs just that way people can listen along. And it's almost like some of them can be a canned audience laugh track. Some others, you just hear the audience groaning, you know, it, it just depends. But, um, no, it's just I've been doing about a feature length per year now, and hey, I'm, I'm still enjoying
0: it, so awesome. that's kind of what I want to keep going with. It's good to hear. Good to hear. So you said you're working on another script now? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Um, it it sort of picks up as a connection to um, Malvagio, my sixth film. So it's actually one to where... I'm going to be ridiculously ambitious on <laughs> makeup. It's going to be more Dick Tracy vibe oh, than nice. what Dick for Hire was. Nice. So kind of doing a,
0: a dark crime film okay, is cool. the next project. And uh, so. if uh, anybody listening wants to keep up with you online, where's the best place to do that? No official website or anything? Uh, I'm, I'm really bad at self-promotion. <laughs> That's
1: probably the other reason that I shouldn't get into that festival okay. game because I'm not good at oh, selling okay. myself. But yeah. Um, I've got the Schadenfreude Studios on um, Facebook, and um, you know, usually you can just hit me up on Facebook. All my stuff, like all the film symbiosis that we're showing tonight, um, Malvaju and all the rest of that, they're all on YouTube because all I really care about is people being able to see them. I'm not worried about making money or anything nice. along that line. So,
0: What's your YouTube handle?
1: Uh, it's Skardol, Scardol. S-C-A-R-D-O-L and I'll at least tell folks if they go on there they might only see a couple of movies it's because typically i keep them unlisted and that's only because um since i ro- rope in teachers as actors and they are cussing or killing oh, people right. i'm like well i don't know if i want those public for every parent of yeah. those teachers to parent of the kids that have those teachers to see so I keep um, some of them unlisted, but if somebody just says, hey, you mind shooting me the URL so I can see the movie? I'm like, that's fine. So actually with Symbiosis, I was sure to go ahead and get it unlisted
0: prior to this. We'll put a bunch of links to that stuff in the show notes for sure. All right, well, thanks, Bo. We're going to go get the room set up, and I appreciate you talking to us and participating. I appreciate being here. Thank you. (laughs)